I have a question for you before we do anything else. And I do not want you to answer this question out loud. And I do not want you to raise your hand. Have you ever been arrested? Now you know why I don't want you to answer this out loud. But have you ever been arrested? Let's just say you haven't. But you've seen people get arrested before, maybe in the, in the movies or something. How do you think it would feel? Just tell me out loud. How do you think it would feel? Scary? Hmm? Yeah, all those things. Uh, and you're not speaking from experience. You just know people that that's happened to. I know. But think about all the emotions that would be going on as you're getting arrested. Maybe fearful. You feel weak. You feel... Um, small, you feel guilty, you feel like ashamed even. Well, today we are going to see the most painful of instances of Jesus' earthly life. We're going to see Jesus' arrest. And there were a lot of human emotions at play in this passage. There, are, there is courage, there is cowardice, there is fear, there is faith, there is love, there is hate. All those things going on. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 26. When you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We are going to be reading Matthew 26, beginning at verse 47 and going down to verse 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come to you today not interested in the opinions of men or the insights of philosophers or the conclusion of psychologists about how we might better live or how we might work our way to you. Lord, we are not here to hear pop psychology or social hints for self-improvement. 
Lord, we are here to hear from you and your word. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would enlighten our eyes. You would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I have very vivid memories of Clayton May's house. Clayton May's house was in Downey. He was the chief of police of the Downey Police Department when I was growing up. And I have very vivid memories of Clayton May's house on one particular night in the late 1980s. I was in seminary and I was on staff at the First Baptist Church of Downey where the Mays also were members. And Clayton Mays, who was the chief of police, would often ask me when they went out of town to watch their house, to house sit. So this one particular night, I was at my house, was watching a movie, and when it was over, I said, well, I better go over to the Mays' house. I'm supposed to be house sitting. It was after midnight, it was late, it was dark. I don't know if there was a full moon or not. You know how sometimes as time goes on, your memory and the stories get kind of bigger? You know, just like the fish you catch get bigger and stuff like that. But I was driving over there and I parked my car and I walked up to the front door and I got the key that they had given me. I had permission to be there. I put the key in the door lock and I turned the door and I opened the door. And all of a sudden, the alarm goes off. The burglar alarm goes off. Now, I'm thinking to myself, that would have been nice to let me know the code. (laughs) Within about 30 seconds, every squad car from the city of Downey Police Department was surrounding me and the house. And I'm standing there, kind of afraid. The son of a policeman, but still wondering and and as the story grows or as the story goes there were guns drawn i was going to be arrested and all sorts of things were happening to me and my life was flashing before my eyes and then all of a sudden i hear garth boggs voice and he says what are you doing here Now, Garth Boggs was a friend of mine from high school. We ran track together, and he was on the Downey Police Department. He was one of the first responders. So, praise God for Garth Boggs. Very vivid memories of Clayton May's house that one dark night in the late 1980s. And every time I read the story of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Uh, uh, coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane and on the Mount of Olives, I, I can't help but think of Clayton May's house. Now the setting that they were in in that day when they were in the Mount of Olives was at night. There was a full moon. It was the night before Passover. It was the night of the full moon. There were olive trees, 200 to 300 year old olive trees in this grove. By the way, in AD 70, when the Romans came in, they cut all these trees down for firewood. But at that point, on a dark night, 
with all these trees, it must have looked ominous. It must have been a bit scary, frightening. They were across the brook Kidron, across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, not far. All the people that were coming into Jerusalem at the Passover would, were required to stay in the vicinity of the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives was in that vicinity. So there would have been a lot of people kind of around, even on a dark night with the full moon, looking a bit ominous and even scary. And on that night, Judas was breaking bad. He was this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of character, this Walter White Heisenberg kind of character, this this person that all along was bad, but badness was just waiting to break out of him. Judas was breaking bad because he was betraying Jesus with a kiss. Look at verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came up with this crowd. What was he saying? In verse 46, Jesus was telling his disciples, let us be going right now. Let's get up because my betrayer is at hand. Surely they had seen the torches and the procession coming from the city walls of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, across the brook Kidron, and up the ascent to the Mount of Olives. A little bit of background on the brook Kidron. You might be thinking of a brook with trout in it that you could go fishing or something. This was more of a dry riverbed, a a wadi, a a dry gulch. It was only uh, having water in the early and late rains when there would be torrential flooding through that riverbed. But it was just a dry riverbed and they would walk across it and then walk up to the Mount of Olives. But Judas was breaking bad. He was betraying Jesus with a kiss. He greeted him with this crowd with swords and clubs and torches and... There were the chief priests, there were the elders of the people, there were a big group. Most likely there were about a thousand people. A a group of soldiers uh, that would have been coming would have been about 600, maybe to 700 soldiers. All to arrest one man, all to arrest this one man of peace who had sat sitting in the temple teaching. Judas comes and says in verse 48 that he had given them a sign. And he said, the one that I will kiss, he is the man. He could have made it easy on himself. He could have said, hey, the one I give a fist bump to, or the one I give a little bro hug to, or maybe even the one I point out. But no, he said, the one I kiss. He was going as bad as he could in this situation. He was playing this, he was milking this for all it was worth. The man I will kiss He is the one. And so verse 49 says, He came up to Jesus and he greeted him and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Literally, that means rejoice, Rabbi. He's laying it on thick. It's like he's acting like they're buddies. And he says, Rejoice, Rabbi. And he kissed him. The Greek construction of that phrase, he kissed him, means he repeatedly kissed him. That, was, that would be weird in our culture, but not in that culture. And in many cultures around the world right now, many men greet each other with a kiss on one or both of the cheeks. Here it says that Judas was basically acting as if he was Jesus' best friend. So he didn't just point him out. But he went and did what only the closest of friends would do. 
Now in those days, the disciple was not to go and greet the master first. That was a sign of insubordination. And that's exactly what Judas did here. Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. It's interesting that he had to do that so they would know who they were dealing with. See, they didn't live in a day where there was photo ID. I mean, we have mirrors, we have, we have pictures of people. We can, we can know what someone looks like before we even meet them. But in that day, most likely, most of these soldiers had no idea which one was Jesus. Plus, it was dark. Plus, it was at night. Plus, it was in a, the Mount of Olives with all sorts probably of shadows from the trees. Jesus says to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Basically, not close friend when he said, like in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you, but basically, okay, mister, do what you came to do. Different word. Do what you came to do. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Judas was breaking bad. What this points out to me is the total depravity of mankind. It's an interesting thing. We have been journeying and going through Matthew for, what, some four years or so now, and we've come now to chapters 26, 27, and 28. What I'm calling the undiluted gospel because it's the the raw, undiluted gospel in all its glory. And what we see in these three chapters, and especially in this passage are the the big macro themes of the Bible that the rest of the New Testament explains in micro. And here, what is on display is the total depravity of man. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that theological idea. And I'll just put it in as simplest terms I can. It means that you're not as bad as you could be, but that every Part of you is infected by sin's disease. We're not as bad as we could be, but every part of us is infected by sin. There's reasons why we are not as bad as we could be. First and foremost is because God has given us a conscience. Look with me over at Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 15... We read these words. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that you can have a seared conscience, that it can become calloused towards God. Judas had taken the downward spiral and he was obviously hardened towards God. He was obviously calloused. He obviously had a seared conscience. There's another reason why we're not as bad as we could be. Romans chapter 13 explains it's because God has given the civil authorities to keep the peace. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a cause for terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, 
and you will receive his approval. Because he is a servant of God for your good. But this plays out the total depravity of man. And here's the question that a lot of people have wanted to know. Why did Judas betray Jesus? I'm going to tell you why he did it. Because he wanted to. Judas wanted to betray Jesus. We do what we want to. You do what you want to. Now you may say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm just a pawn. Everyone just kind of tells me where to go all the time. I'm a victim of everyone else's agenda. And all I can tell you is, that's not true. You do what you want to do. You say, well, no, I didn't want to come to church today, but my wife dragged me here. Well, you wanted to be here because you didn't want your wife to get mad at you. You do what you want to do. You go to work tomorrow morning because you don't want to lose your job. You do all sorts of things because you want to. Can't make excuses here for why we did something because it was someone else's fault. We do what we want. One of the parallel passages to this passage is Luke 22, and Jesus basically says in verse 53, this is your hour. He says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Darkness is reigning in this hour. The total depravity of man is on display. Judas was breaking bad. He was betraying Jesus with a kiss. I think what this should all remind us in a very sober way is that we must examine our hearts. We must examine who we really are. Here is Judas, who's one of the twelve. Do you notice notice in Matthew 26, verse 47, the first verse, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve. Now, in extra-biblical literature, there are all sorts of stories out there, uh, theories about Judas, and they all paint him in a bad light. I think it is telling that in this setting, he is simply called one of the twelve. He's also called the betrayer. But I think it points up the heinousness of his crime, the insidious nature of what he did to Jesus. He's one of the twelve. He's one of Jesus' closest companions. He's been with Jesus for three years. It doesn't seem like the other disciples are are wondering about Judas or suspecting him of anything. He's just going along. He was there when Jesus did all sorts of things and raising people from the dead and calming storms and, and doing God stuff. He was a witness of these things. He was, he was sent out with the other disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Weed among the wheat? It, it really should sober us to, to ask the questions about our own hearts and our own lives of where we really stand with God. Second Peter, verse 1, that's where it leads us. Second Peter, chapter 1 talks about how God, by His divine power, has granted to Christians everything pertaining to life and godliness. It talks about how there should be progress in godliness in the life of a Christian, and how there should be steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, and things like this. And it says that if these qualities are yours, if they're in your life and they're increasing, you basically have assurance. But then it says in verse 9, 2 Peter 1, 9, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. We've got to ask ourselves that question. Have I been called by God to faith in Christ? Am I one of the elect that Peter is writing to? Is there proof in my life of God at work in my life? Judas was breaking bad, betraying Jesus with a kiss. And then we come to Peter. Peter is breaking down. I can imagine what the disciples were like at that point. Sleep deprived, sorrowful. They couldn't stay awake with Jesus to pray. One of the parallel passages says because they were sorrowful. He's been telling them over and over again he's going to die. He's going to be gone. Peter was breaking down. He's out chopping people's ears off. Look at verse 51. Behold. Now, I want you to notice that word behold. We've seen this over and over again in Matthew. This word behold is one of Matthew's favorite words. You want a great study? Just go through Matthew and uh, circle all the beholds and, and pay close attention to what comes after. Because behold is, listen up, listen up. This is big. You've got to see this. You've got to hear this. Behold what? One of those with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, I've always pictured this scene, and it doesn't equate in my mind when I've pictured it in the past. It does now, but in the past I would kind of view this kind of spaghetti western scene where there was like a western scene that was kind of too clean and it was like on a sound stage or something and here's Jesus and his disciples, they, they get up from praying and they're kind of just standing there, clean floor, you know, nice background and this group comes up, oh I don't know, five or ten people, you know, maybe twenty people and they're like, we want Jesus, you know, and Judas comes up, kind of gives them a peck on the cheek, and then, you know, then, and then Peter takes a sword out and says, mm, excuse me, I think you got some ear hairs there that need to be trimmed. Can I just stay still? Whack! Or, like, more like this. Um, I don't like you because you're coming to arrest Jesus. I'm cutting off your ear. Whack! And it's just like, why? Why, why the ear? What's the big deal? Here's the deal. Peter was trying to kill him. That's what was happening. Now, we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, that it was Peter that did it, and that Malchus was the servant that got his ear chopped off. Peter wasn't trying to chop off ears. He was trying to cut off heads. Now, to his credit, here's Peter who's being told, you are going to betray me. You are going to deny me three times. So he's thinking, I'm sure at this point, this is the moment. I'm not going to miss it. I'm going. Now think of it. 600 to 700 armed soldiers. And Peter just runs up and tries to kill the dude. 
That's bravery. Foolish, but brave, but courageous. Give Peter some credit. Everybody else is like, oh no, what's going on? Peter's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this whole group down. Peter, chopping people's ears off? Jesus didn't say, hey, good job, Peter. Bad shot, <laughs> but, but, but nice try. He didn't say that. He goes, Peter, put your sword away. It's not what we're about here. It's not how we roll. Not going to the cross. Here's what Jesus says. Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, don't take this verse and go into all some, you know, I'm going to be a pacifist, and this means that no one can have swords. Jesus didn't say burn your sword or throw it away. He said just put it back where it was. Just put it back where it was. Don't throw it away. Don't do away with it. Just don't use it for this setting. I'm going to the cross. So Jesus says, don't you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was 6,000. 12 times 6, 72. 72, More than 72,000 angels at a moment's notice on standby for Jesus. And Peter thinks he can be his bodyguard. I mean, again, Peter's been in all these settings. He knows how powerful Jesus is. And he thinks he needs to be his protector with a little sword. There's a couple words in Greek for sword. There's romphi, which is this huge, big sword, which I, I picture. But what he has in his hand is a machaira, which is a small dagger that's used for hand-to-hand combat. Peter's breaking down, though. And what is Peter doing? He is... He is sinfully self-reliant here. Jesus says, don't do what you just did. Don't do it. He's sinfully self-reliant. The idea here is what we think we should do is not always what God wants us to do. I love that Luke, the physician, tells us, Luke's the one that says that Jesus put the ear back on. Go to Luke 22. There's a couple things that Luke tells us that Matthew doesn't. Luke says that Jesus asked Judas a question and said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? But he also tells us in verse 51 that he touched his ear and healed him. I love that. He touched his ear and healed him. Well, of course he would do that, right? As long as he wasn't supposed to cut the ear off. That's why he put it back on. Jesus patches up what we mess up now i think that was a miraculous thing that happened wasn't it putting the ear back on but let's just think for a moment what if peter had chopped the whole head off wouldn't that be a cool thing to see jesus put back together man i wish that had happened because that would be that would be super cool but the ear thing is cool god patches up what we mess up he undid the damage. The only thing I can think of in my life is spackle. I love spackle. It, it cleans up what I mess up. You know, I just I messed up the door. Well, I'll just 
put some spackle on it and then sand it and paint it it looks brand new spackle there's a somebody hurt the wall well let's put some spackle on it it's great 12 legions of angels could could come at a moment's notice more than 72,000 angels in one moment could come and rescue Jesus if he wanted to be rescued and this puts us with Moses at Migdal and the sea where there's a whole bunch of chariots and a big old sea and they're in between and it all looks hopeless this puts us in Dothan with Elisha and his servant when there's just an army coming to kill them all Elisha prays Lord open his eyes that he would see that those who are with us are more than with them God opens the servant's eyes and he sees angels and chariots of fire all around. You know, 2 Chronicles 32 tells us that one angel could destroy a whole army. What do you think 72,000 could do? God put the Syrian soldiers to flight. God drowned the army of Egypt in the Red Sea. Jesus knew that he was surrounded by the heavenly host. When you read that in the Bible, host, the heavenly host, it's not the the person in charge of all the MCs. Host means army. He's in charge of the army of heaven. God would give his angels charge over him. Just say the word. But he doesn't call for the angels. In fact, in John, he says, let these go their way. Let my disciples go. He's thinking about his disciples here. Let them go their way. Uh, So that the saying will be fulfilled, I lost not one of those you gave me. He said, take me away. No weapons, just take me away. You know, 2 Corinthians 10 gives us instruction along these same lines. Verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You know, the church has gone wrong through history with all sorts of atrocities by using the sword. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not progress with the sword. It's by the word of God and the Holy Spirit. It's like Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies of heaven. So Judas was breaking bad. He trained Jesus with a kiss. Peter's breaking down, chopping people's ears off. But Jesus is standing there as the only dependable one fulfilling scripture in total control what we see here is that verse 55 tells us at that hour Jesus says to the crowds have you come out against me as a robber now you think of a robber and you think oh yeah a burglar ripped off the tv or a burglar you know uh, smashed my window of my car and stole my stereo or my iphone or whatever well you don't send every squad car for that it's not what we're talking about here 
The best way to translate this in, in modern day terms is, you came out against me as if I was a terrorist? You came out against me as if I was this radical freedom fighter? In Josephus' book, the, the Jewish Wars, he tells about assassins in those days that, that sprung up that would do murders in broad daylight in the town squares. And the people panicked. And they would send squads of soldiers out, such as the type that were coming out against Jesus. Jesus says, you coming against me as if I'm an assassin? As if I'm a terrorist? He said, I sat in the temple teaching day after day and you didn't do this. What was he doing? Sitting? He was taking the authoritative posture of a teacher. They would not back down. What we see here is that all fail but Jesus. And Jesus had predicted it in chapter 26, verse 31. He says, you know what? You're all going to be scattered this night. You're all going to leave. You're all going to fall away. And it's written, Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. See, what God says always happens. What God wants will happen. It was very easy to see by scripture even that a close friend would betray Jesus Psalm 41 verse 9 even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me Psalm 55 verse 12 for it is not an enemy who taunts me then I could bear it it is not an adversary who deals insolently with me then I could hide from him but it is you a man my equal my companion my familiar friend we used to take sweet counsel together within God's house while we walked in the throng you see in Isaiah 53 what would happen to Jesus verse 3 he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not what you need to know is this the arrest of Jesus did not arrest the plan of God it advanced it go over to John chapter 18 and you'll see a parallel account this is where we know they came across the Kidron Valley and into the garden and he went with his disciples and Judas who betrayed him knew the place led the throng to the place to take Jesus but verse 4 of John 18 says Jesus knowing all that would happen to him here's Jesus in complete control Look what happens. Jesus, verse 4, came forward and said to the crowd. Here is Jesus getting arrested and being going to be taken to a false trial and then to the cross, and he's in charge. He's arresting the crowd. He says, Who do you seek? Remember, they're not in the day of photo IDs, they're not in the day of easy visual recognition. They didn't have tons of mirrors like we do where people could look at their face in the mirror. We're talking about who is this guy that we're coming to get? And Jesus says, let me, let me ask you, who are you, who are you looking for? Well, the answer came back, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' reply, look at it. Verse 5, I am he. In the Greek, it's ego emi. I am. 
It's like saying, I am, I am. It's the, it's the Greek way of saying the Hebrew word Yahweh. You look in the Gospel of John and you see Jesus saying, I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. Here he says, I am. Ego e me. And what did they do? Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There were two groups that were terrified in this scene. First, it was the disciples. But there was a group more terrified than them. It was this crowd of soldiers. In the presence of Jesus, why did they fall to the ground? He had bad breath or what? Was there a strong wind blowing? We know all about that. No. They were in the presence of a holy God. They were in the presence of the great I Am. They fall to the ground. If, If they would have stayed there, what would have happened? They got up. They got up and they stood bold-faced in front of Jesus and he asks them again, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. They seized him. They get up, they dust themselves off and they say, we're doing this because that's what they wanted to do. Now, it was in the plan of Judas. It was in the mind of Judas to kill Jesus. It was in the mind of the crowd and the soldiers and the chief priests and the elders of the people to kill Jesus. But it was also in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. Okay, I'm going to say something that you guys are not going to like. I think you should all be arrested right now open the doors bring them in now uh, you should all be arrested right now and you should not resist this arrest because you should all be arrested by Jesus you should let Jesus arrest you if you think about it Jesus captures hearts mercifully he doesn't come and knock you upside the head with swords and spears he doesn't chop off your ears he captures hearts mercifully, and when he does, what you find out is that something was done for you. Jesus substituted himself in your place. And Jesus changes lives radically. What you find out when, when that happens in your life, when you come to faith in Christ, is that something has been done to you, that God has regenerated your heart and given you the desire to follow him. And what Jesus does when he arrests your soul is he corrects sin lovingly. Think about with with Peter. Peter, just put your sword away. Put your sword away. What you find is that something is happening in you. Justification. God is freeing you from sin's penalty. And sanctification, where God is at work in your life freeing you from sin's power. And you find that glorification is is in action as well. And one day you will ultimately be freed from sin's presence. And it's not because of what you do. It's not because of you following some list. Think about Judas. Think about Peter. 
They're doing it all on their own. Either totally depraved or sinfully self-reliant. They're doing what they want and it's not always what God wants. But you have to say, if I'm a Christian today, it's because of what Jesus did. It's not because of some warped view in our lives of thinking that we have to perform in a certain way for God to love us. God takes us from the total depravity and the sinful self-reliance and the performance-driven mindset and says, you forget about that and you focus on my unconditional love and you focus on my grace and on my mercy. Here is Jesus letting himself be taken, bound to a false trial, one man to die for sin, judged in our place. It is important for us to know why. It is for God's glory. Because of what Christ has done, Jesus wants to arrest your soul and free you to live in His grace and His unconditional love and His mercy, freed from sinful self-reliance, free from your performance mentality. Theologically, we often talk about the work of Jesus on our behalf because of his righteousness and his obedience. But I want, as we close, to to point out something about Christ's obedience. Because Philippians 2 tells us that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, And the thing we've got to make a distinction between is his active obedience and his passive obedience. Jesus didn't get airlifted out of heaven and go straight to the cross. What happened? The cross pays the penalty for sin. But God's covenant required sin to be paid for and true righteousness to be achieved. So Christ died for our sins on the cross, but He also lived the perfect life for our righteous justification. He earned it. He was born under the law. He lived a sinless life, which is essential for our salvation. He acted out of obedience to God's law. 30 years of active obedience to God, to every one of God's laws, His perfect active obedience. But what we see in this passage is Christ's passive obedience. Not retaliating when they come to arrest Him, Allowing himself passively to be the victim for our guilt. His passive surrender to be punished for our sins didn't start when he got beat up after his trial. It started the moment he got off his knees in Gethsemane and said, rise, my betrayer is at hand. Let's go. He took the cup. He says, here I am, swords away, in obedience to the Father, to be our substitute by his death. Lord God, we thank you that you are great and awesome and holy. We thank you that Jesus did not attempt to flee, did not allow the disciples to fight, just said, take me away. The lamb, like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Like the lamb before its shearer is silent. Put your sword away, Peter. 
Shall I not drink this cup? Thank you, Lord, for drinking that hellish cup for us. And thank you for your grace and your unconditional love and your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.